Right, without further ado, um, to speak to us from our series on the miracles of Jesus, Simon, do you want to come up and talk to us? Good morning. I think I'm on, aren't I? That's great. Well, I hope you've had a good summer and that uh, God's been at work in your lives. We went to Transform and found it quite a special time of encountering God. I don't know whether you've found that this year, but there was a sort of special deposit of, of God's presence, I felt, in, in all that we were involved in. I came back from Transform and found that God had done an upgrade on my life, uh, which was really very good and very challenging as well. So I don't know whether you've... Uh, Martin Dunkley spoke to us earlier this year about God promising upgrade for us as, as, as his people in, in various areas of our lives. So I came back from Transform to find that at work, it was as though a tipping point had been reached and gone over, actually, of change in my job. Three years ago, I felt God wanted me to change jobs, and I think I've mentioned this to you before. But I convinced some people at the university here that I could do a new, a new job, a job which we had to invent and create, which was very exciting about starting some new activities, some new ventures. And um, what's happened is one of the things I was doing was looking at whether we could spin a company out. Uh, this would be a company that would help developing countries in particular to use uh, the, our knowledge about climate change and how it, how it works to tell them how to build infrastructure, whether it's roads or energy systems or water treatment or water supply systems, in a way that would avoid those systems falling over when climate impacts happen, like extreme weather and things like that. We'd gone along tentatively on this journey with me saying, yes, we need to do this, I've got a vision for it. And suddenly, when I came back from holiday, it's other people going, yes, let's do it, and here we are, and we'll help you. And you're like, oh, crumbs, I've actually got to make it happen now. <laughs> so that's been very exciting. I was also working with the space industry down the road in Harwell, and they are interested in using all of the things that they deploy in space to look at the Earth or to position things, you know, GPS-type stuff, interested in using that. And I found that I came back having encouraged lots of possible interactions with people saying, right, we're putting this big project together in Ethiopia, we want your team in. And someone else saying, we're putting a big project together in Malaysia, we want your team in. And I know that I'm the kind of link man in the middle who's gone to everyone, come on, guys. And suddenly, it's all happening. And, uh, <laughs> and the challenge then is I've only got a certain number of hours in the day. So I have to do what we were praying for, what John was praying for. I have to get those roots down. I have to be trusting in God and I have to allow him to use me. So I feel like I'm, God's pushed me over the top of the roller coaster and I'm now zooming down and needless to say the deadlines for all the funding are really short because these days governments making lots of knee-jerk reactions about giving money out to research so I have basically a month of September to write all these very complicated applications for large amounts of money so that's my life at the moment at work at least <laughs> now we're talking about life with God and resurrection so I thought I'd bring that in because I think there's a touch of God doing some stuff in my life, and I suspect there's more he wants to do in all of our lives. So we're talking about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I want to talk to you about the impact now, well, the impact then and the impact now, actually. 
So I want to start by reading with you from John 11. Let's, let's read it together. I've got it down on my bits of paper here. It's a fair length, but you can see it on the screen as well. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. That's quite a standard sort of message, although it doesn't actually ask him to do anything, does it? It's a strange message there. Anyway, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Does it really say that? Not he sped up and got there quicker. It's interesting, isn't it? And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back. This is actually the end of John 10, is they're talking about stoning him. So it's just happened. And they've crossed over to the other side of the Jordan to kind of get away from these guys. And then he's kind of doing a U-turn and going back over the Jordan to Judea again. So you'd think, they're thinking, what on earth are you doing? We just got away from them and now you're leading us back there. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks, sorry, I'm, I'm... Am I, uh, I'm not clicking this on, am I? Do, do, do. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. This is the second time that he said this to them about Lazarus falling asleep. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Which you could interpret is as, well, if he sleeps, he'll get better over there, and we'd rather stay over here, quite frankly, where we are. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, in his inimitable fashion, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Great. Another famous Thomas quote there. I'm sure we all know somebody who puts their foot in it like that sort of way. But hey. Now, on his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, we know that that meant that he was going to be rather smelly because he'd been anointed with various, various, uh, various things, herbs and spices, and he'd been wrapped in his clothes, and then he'd been put in the tomb four days previously. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. That's quite an interesting statement, isn't it? And Jesus said to her, 
your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But I still wonder what was going on between them in that sort of conversation. There was an inkling, wasn't there, in Martha of there may be some more to this than I'm saying. And Jesus said to her, and this is the key bit of his words. This is his pronouncement of his sign here, right in the middle of this section of the scripture. I am the resurrection and the life. Remember the I am statement. That's basically Jesus saying, I am God. I am the resurrection and the life. Probably one of the most powerful, however many words it is, seven words that were said in the whole of the New Testament. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. A bit like Peter's confession of Jesus in the, same, in, in, the, in the New Testament. She believes that he's the Messiah. Praise God. After she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I wonder whether that was a, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Do you think it might have been something like that? may have been or lord a sort of pleading if you if only you'd been here my brother would not have died i don't think these words come without strong emotion in there do they and that may be part of the reason she hung back at first although there's other possibilities about her being with other mourners at that time and when jesus saw her weeping and the jews who'd come along with her also weeping he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. He carried our sorrows as well as carrying our sin. And here he's taking our sorrows. He doesn't come as a machine-like saviour to just carry out miracles. He comes with a heart that's fully God and fully human and bears their sorrows at this moment. Then Jesus, the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, perhaps like Mary had just said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, this is really, it deeply means deeply, I think, here, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up 
and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Well, he wasn't dead then. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I wonder why he had to say that. They were probably all standing there looking at him, weren't they? Don't you think? I think I would be at that point, just rather. <sighs> Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That's an amazing piece of scripture, isn't it? There's actually more in it that you can fit into about another 10 or 15 minutes of talking. So I'm going to summarize some of this. I like drawing graphs. We've probably got the passion bit science sort of guy. Here's what I think is happening. Here's the progression of Jesus' ministry. And the raising of Lazarus is a turning point, a tipping point. It's a point of change, but it's also the point of greatest impact. He'd previously raised two other people from dead, the dead, but he'd done it in a, what we might call an opportunistic way. He'd done it on the spur, almost on the spur of the moment, and he'd done it with only a small number of people there. This time, he seems to have planned it rather well even to the extent of saying, no, we'll give it another couple of days, despite the fact that his disciples must have been, and Mary and Martha and others must have been confused if they understood anything of what was happening there. Jesus had this planned to a T. In fact, he even had all the relevant people. He had the mourners were there, and they would be doing their wailing and they're beating their breasts and all of that. He had his disciples who he'd brought along with him. He had Mary and Martha. He had some of the people with the mourners were those who would then go to the Sanhedrin. Do you think he knew that they were going to plot against him? Of course he did. He understood that what he was doing was out in the open now. This was his culmination of his ministry on earth. And obviously his resurrection has even greater impact, but this resurrection has very significant impact and changes the game. So we'll, give, we'll look at this in a little bit more detail because I think this I am the resurrection and the life right at the heart of this 
is, the, is what Jesus says. It, it's what the sign is that John refers to when he looks at the different miracles through the New Testament, through his gospel. And it's the turning point. What it does, interestingly at this point, we can see, uh, sorry the text is a bit light colored, but we can see that this sort of situation brings to light lots of things for people. It reveals the fears of the disciples. They're more worried about getting stoned than about seeing God move in Lazarus's life. And their, their fears are very evident in this. But it also reveals Mary and Martha's hearts and their faith, the level of faith that they really do have. They do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's just that they can't quite see how that's going to work out in their lives and in Lazarus's life. You have to think that they've just lost their brother and they're both single women in a society where the brother would have been probably the major earner and the major provider, the major protector. They've just lost something quite tremendous in their lives. And that must have been churning inside of them as well as all this stuff about, well, Jesus, we've known you so well. Who are you? What are you like? These women were under an awful lot of pressure and in an awful lot of difficulty. And yet they were still able to come out with those words. And I think that's, that's amazing for them. This raising of Lazarus was also what we call a type. In other words, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus's resurrection, but in another situation. So in raising Lazarus from the dead, he's also foreshadowing and pointing to the fact that he was going to be raised from the dead in the same way. It's like a prophetic act before the main act. And therefore, it's not surprising that it has powerful impact, even if its impact is not quite as world tra and globally transforming as obviously the resurrection of Jesus is. For the environment he's in, he's still having a major impact. And so this is a very important raising from the dead. It also glorifies Jesus. Jesus talks about it, glorifying him. It shows how he has power over death, but also how he carries our sorrows. It, it deals with both of those things at the same time. Do you see that? It, it's not just, oh, resurrection power alone. It's actually Jesus is the one who also gets in alongside the family. I'm not sure his disciples would have been there groaning and deeply moved in the same way. This is something that was happening in Jesus. There were official mourners. You, you could hire them and pay them to mourn, and they would, they would be paid whalers, really, which was a strange thing in that society. But I'm sure they weren't able to get in and carry sorrows. They were just there to effectively communicate something in the, in the light of this mourning process, but that was that. And lastly, this actually triggered the Jews to plan for Jesus' death, kind of up their game. They were like, right, we've got to do something now, weren't they? And Caiaphas's prophetic words that he spoke were amazing, weren't they? they? He came in and he says, right, it's time for one man to die for the whole nation rather than the nation die, which is effectively exactly articulating the approach that these guys were taking. And, and it was said by the high priest. Amazing, isn't it? The high priest, the leader of the Jews at the time, was the guy who then says, right, it's time for him to die. And you think, wow, that's quite a statement. This is the trigger for that, and trigger for them to get on with it, basically, in their planning. 
Hence, I've said how much of an impact this has, that it is the, the pinnacle of all of the ministry of Jesus because of that and because of what it, it shows about who Jesus is. So praise God for this act. Isn't it amazing to see how Jesus was revealed through it? But I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' resurrection power for us as well. Because we kind of know that this might be a story 2,000 years ago, but God's spoken it to us. John's written it down in order that it communicate to us about what Jesus is like. That Jesus is the one who carries our sorrows. He actually can get alongside us wherever we're at in our lives. I've written down there resurrection and our destinies. Lazarus didn't have much of a destiny when he was wrapped up. I even brought some toilet rolls. If we'd have had some more time, we'd have wrapped up a Lazarus this morning. But I didn't think we had quite enough time to do that. I know, I know. Maybe we could do a bit of Lazarus wrapping afterwards, maybe, or something like that. But I, um, you know how I like reenactments if you've been here several summers. Um, I generally do. Um, but I want to get across the message of what I feel God's saying today. So I think that's, that's really important. Lazarus didn't have a destiny when he was de- on earth when he was dead. But Jesus restored his destiny. He rose him from the dead and enabled him to continue living. We may feel in some parts of our lives that our destiny may not be there anymore. There may not be a way forward for us. This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that's at work in us. We may feel that some of our our dreams that we've had, maybe for a long time, haven't been fulfilled yet. I think Jesus is about restoring those dreams as well. That was what he was doing for these people, their dreams, their, their hopes as well. I put the word hope because that's something often I see as us holding on to. It says in Hebrews about hope as an anchor for the soul. And I feel like there's some anchors that we need to grasp hold of again and say, yes, my hope is in that. So I, I just believe this morning that God wants to move like that. I was interested that Rod read out a bit from Isaiah 54. I'll read the previous bit as well for a minute because I think God's up to something here. It says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Isaiah writes, sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. That's a person who felt like she had no future there because she was barren. And God says, more of the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. It's quite a profound speaking there, isn't it? And enlarging the place of your tent, which is probably 
not the thing that a barren woman with no children and no family would do. But God was saying more than that. Some of you will probably realize that this is quite pertinent to Carol and myself because we've not been able to have children naturally. So this has been a scripture that has meant a lot to me. And although we have two wonderful adopted children, there's been something that God has done in my heart, in our hearts, about wanting this to happen as well. Enlarging the place of our tent, stretching our tent curtains wide, not holding back. And God, some time back, spoke to me about being a father of many, a bit like the Abraham, uh, the way that Abraham gets spoken to by God. And you think, well, how's that going to (laughs) happen? And yet I feel like God has reminded me of this just recently, actually, beyond what Rod had said this morning, that he's about recovering destinies for people. He's about restoring dreams. He's about restoring hopes as well through his resurrection power. And I just believe that there may be others here this morning where you feel that God is saying to you, come on, stretch out your hands again towards me. Stretch out from where you are at at the moment. And it may be you're at the place where Mary and Martha were at, where they they were confused because so much was going on in their lives and so many other pressures were there. But it just took... I think that small, those small comments, those powerful words, but small comments, where I think it was Martha, where were we reading, just said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I just think that it just needed that sort of stepping out and saying that. And I just want to encourage you that this morning, I don't know quite how we're going to wrap this up, Al. (laughs) But um, if there's things in your life where you're just going, Lord, I can't see how this is going to happen, but I've got that hope, that dream, that sense of destiny. It just needs those words like Martha just to say, Lord, I just believe you and I trust you. And that's what she said. And that's what then Jesus did in terms of turning their circumstances around. Now, you can imagine us talking about Mary and Martha having lost their breadwinner, their protector, etc. They suddenly had him back, and suddenly life was back in a direction where God had intended it to be. And so I just believe that God wants to move in some people's lives this morning. And I'll perhaps leave it to Al to work out how specifically to, uh, to do, do the next bit.